This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'll be speaking with Linda Black Elk from the Catawba Nation. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but maybe if we'd shown greater respect for the micro, we wouldn't be dealing with a pandemic virus right now. So I think that restoration ecology can sort of be a guide for how we relate to the planet, how we relate to our Mother Earth in the future. First listening and understanding and developing a relationship and then looking at ways that we can actually rebuild and restore and experiment. Linda is an ethnobotanist specializing in traditional foods and medicines of the Great Plains. She is currently the director of food sovereignty at United Tribes Technical College in Bismarck, North Dakota, and is the mother of three Lakota sons. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Like I was mentioning, this is a dream come true for me to be speaking with you. I have so much respect and I feel so connected to your work and the way that you go about your work in this world. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I've listened to your podcast before and I love it. So I'm really honored to be on here. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you just made my day. (laughs) So Linda, (laughs) of course, I have to begin by asking about the use of traditional medicine right now when it comes to community wellness. And I know so many of us are taking time to take care and sourcing practices that can boost our immune systems through ancestral medicine, nourishing meals, being in prayer, acting in service to elders, and even just taking a moment to lay in the sun. And as a practitioner, I'm wondering if you could share some of the most important things you are doing to take care right now. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's a really tough time to practice self-care right now. We're all really stressed and stress and anxiety, of course, lower our immune systems. And so I would say that probably the best thing I'm doing for myself and my family, the ones that I am isolating with, is to laugh and to keep our stress levels down, to talk to each other, to joke around with each other, keep our anxiety levels low so that our immune systems can keep repairing themselves. So that's probably the most important thing is just to make sure that we are doing things to allow ourselves to enjoy the moment, enjoy this time with our families, while still remaining aware of what's happening in the outside world. It's a tough thing to do, but you know we can do it. The other thing, and I would say that it's probably equally important, is that I'm making sure to 
eat right. What does that mean to eat right? <laughs> because some people would probably say that eating right is just a matter of getting enough calories in your system. And, you know, there is no food shaming here. If people only have access to processed foods, you know, things that are high in salt and sugar and preservatives, then that's all they have access to. And, you know, I honor them and their journey and, you know, whatever food they need to eat. But if they have access, if we have access to foods that don't just nourish us physically, don't just provide calories, but also feed us emotionally and mentally and spiritually, then we should be doing that. And it's sort of my mission to help people to be aware of the fact that they probably have some of these foods that nourish them mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually growing right outside of their doors. And they're free. So that's always really important to my community, which is indigenous people of the Northern Great Plains. But, you know, anyone else who needs that, I believe healing is for everyone. So, yeah, so I'm focusing on staying as happy as possible, decreasing stress, but also eating good things like the wild plants, which, of course, are not just edible, but medicinal as well. I'm focusing on a lot of fermented foods like kimchi and sauerkraut. I'm not a huge fan of kombucha, <laughs> which has become a very popular probiotic these days, but I love vinegars, various fermented vinegars like maple vinegar, and I'm incorporating a lot of those into my diet. And I'm trying to, as much as possible, even though I don't believe in sort of preaching elimination diets, I'm trying to decrease the amount of sugar I eat, the amount of refined sugar I eat. I'm trying to decrease the amount of refined flour in my diet. And I'm always trying to decrease the amount of dairy in my diet. Now, as I was saying earlier, I love to laugh and I love joy. And sometimes that means eating cheese me, or it means eating <laughs> bacon, or it means eating some brownies. It's just a matter of finding that balance between what is good for your body, what's good to eat, what you have access to, and what is going to help you stay as happy and connected as possible. Oh my goodness, Linda. Bacon, cheese, and brownies? Yes, please. That also <laughs> brings me joy. <laughs> so thank you for those reminders. <laughs> I think that in times of crisis, we can forget these simple reminders of taking care in these ways of eating and laughing and and they feel really important right now and yeah it's just undeniable that we are navigating this great unknown when it comes to what we do and you know we don't know all the details of covid-19 so i'd like to talk a little bit about the debate that is going on around different plant medicines and whether or not they should be recommended Obviously, we know that there is no official designated cure or preventative measures, but that being said, we can't just turn our backs on the medicines that have been in use since time immemorial. So I'd love if you could share with us what it means to practice plant medicine during times of urgency, and how can we balance our reliance on plant medicine while preventing the potential misuse of this medicine during this time? Mm -hmm. This is such a great question. So I think that one of the, dare I say, faults of Western medicine is that it is always trying to look for the cure. 
Western medicine is always trying to look for the magic bullet, the thing that will either keep people from getting sick or the thing that will actually cure an illness. As indigenous people, we're lucky because indigenous medicine, traditional medicine, really focuses on the general action of plants. It doesn't focus on this magic bullet. So for example, we've had a lot of discussion recently about elderberry elixir, which is a mixture of medicines actually, that of course includes elderberries and it includes raw honey and and beautiful spices like star anise and cinnamon. People put turmeric and echinacea and rose hips into their elderberry elixir. It's just a beautiful mixture of medicines that boost your immune system and help with cough and respiratory illness. And, you know, all of these medicines have a general action, such as boosting your immune system or such as generally being an antiviral. They're not trying to be a magic bullet. So people can use them in a really good, safe way to just make themselves more able to fight off illness. And I think that those general actions are really important. And I think that that is where Western medicine falls behind. They're not trying to help people be healthier. They are trying to find the magic bullet that will either prevent or cure the illness. So that means that we have to step in early within these epidemics and pandemics as indigenous people, as we have always done, stepped in to save and to comfort our communities, whether they are our Indigenous brothers and sisters or non-Indigenous community members as well. And I have really found that a lot of the hundreds of messages and requests for advice that I get per day actually come from non-Native people who are just at an absolute loss and who are scared because they know that Western medicine does not have a way to currently fight or cure a COVID-19 infection. So I'm, I'm happy to share that information with them. Thank you so much for being so available, especially during this time. It's troubling and people are really confused and there's so mm-hmm. much to be confused about that we'll, we'll get into more of that further into the conversation. But by now, I think we're all familiar with the power that perceived scarcity holds as it has caused millions across the globe to engage in mass hoarding. In response, many are cultivating self-resilience by turning to traditional medicines and personal gardens. However, I've noticed that the hoarding mentality reigns supreme in many of these well-intentioned actions. For example, many seed companies are completely sold out, and medicine like elderberry and bear root or osha root are being harvested at an unhealthy rate. So I can't help but think about how we remain trapped within the psychological confines of unbridled capitalism, that even when we seek out so-called alternative ways of being, we continue to reenact selfish behavior in our harvesting, foraging, growing, etc. So I'd love if you could share with us how this behavior is diametrically opposed to being in relation with Earth. Or perhaps any guidance on practicing honorable harvest amidst times of panic? So I've been dealing with this a lot lately. And, you know, I try to harvest as much of my own medicines as possible so that I can come in physical and spiritual contact with my plant relatives, talk to them, talk to them about why I'm harvesting them and how they're going to be applied. And I feel like that always helps. But 
you know, as an individual, there's just no way that I can harvest enough for everyone that I want to help. So I do contact various people, friends of mine who might have stuff available, who might have medicines available. And a lot of them are struggling right now (laughs) with having enough to meet the demand. It's important to remember that there's a difference between hoarding and being prepared, like all that bullshit with the toilet paper and processed high carb foods like ramen noodles that I was talking about earlier. You know, people are hoarding those items, making sure that you and your community, and let me stress the and there, making sure that you and your community have what they need. That's vital because we won't make it through this on our own. Being in quarantine doesn't mean that we can't take care of each other. The key, I think, to fighting this hoarding mentality is the opposite of hoarding, which is sharing. And I believe healing is for everyone and that we have to trust our relatives, native and non-native, in these times of crises. I remember, as you know, I was very involved down at Standing Rock in the camps fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I remember after I came through all of that, even though I had been pepper sprayed 12 times, even though I had been shot with rubber bullets, even though I had been sprayed with water cannons and sub-zero temperatures and had been the victim of this CS, you know, this nerve gas that made me shake all over Even after all of that, I remember standing there and looking around and thinking to myself that people are generally good. People are good. And I swore to myself, swore to myself that I would never forget that. And that's what I've been trying to remind myself of as I watch the news and I see people, you know, hoarding seeds and hoarding traditional medicines and over harvesting sage because they think that it's going to kill SARS-CoV-2 all around them. And, you know, I think a lot of that comes from misinformation and that it requires a large degree of patience on the part of healers and indigenous people in general to encourage sustainability, to encourage sharing and demand, not just encourage, but demand that people follow proper protocols that have been put in place by the people who know this land better than anyone. And that's us. That's native people. We have to believe and encourage common sense. People who are saying ridiculous things about this virus being a hoax, you know, as our Diné relatives are dying in droves, you know, we need to practice patience, common sense. We need to be teachers in a time when really I'm tired. (laughs) I get very tired of having to share and teach But right now, it is more critical than ever that we as Indigenous people are willing to share and demand that other people share and practice common sense and critical thinking and all of that. But there's been a real push over the last few years where my non-Native friends, I'll say it, my white friends, have stepped forward for me when people will try to argue with me or say, for example, that this isn't all native land, you guys lost some war or something. Well, I have this amazing group of non-native friends who step up and don't make me (laughs) try to explain to people why what they're saying is ridiculous. And I really value my friends for doing that because it gives me energy to continue and it gives me energy for times of crisis like this so that I can step up and protect my plant relatives, make sure that people are sharing, make sure that people are following 
proper protocols, demanding that of them. And it makes a difference. And you know, beyond that, there's really not a whole lot I can do. I can explain, I can teach, and I can encourage, and I can demand. And beyond that, there's just not a lot that I can do. I do not want to be within touching distance of someone who's trying to overharvest sage right now. <laughs> so all I can do is hope that if I give them the right information, they'll take it and do good things with it. Wow, Linda, your patience <laughs> and bravery and love, like just so much love that you have for this earth and for all the creatures, including the humans roaming around is unbelievable. Just that you've been able to put yourself on the front lines, your body on the front lines for what was happening at Standing Rock with the pipeline and also have patience for those who have been doing things that are harmful and still see the good in people. I mean, that is such a practice that like, yeah, so challenging. And it's really inspiring to hear you speak to these things with so much care and love. And I don't know, just a feeling of abundance that you are sharing with us is really beautiful. And well, and you know, I think it's mm -hmm. important to also for me to say that it doesn't mean I'm not fearful. You know, I am placing a great amount of trust in people that I have actually been taught to not trust. And one of my friends, her name's Valerie, she's another plant person. And she made a very good point that, you know, she was saying to me as I was making videos and I was on webinars talking about various plant medicines for boosting immunity and fighting infection. And she said, don't ever forget that most of the witch hunts that have taken place have occurred after pandemics. And that was very striking to me because it's true. It's historically accurate. A lot of times it's the healers after a pandemic who are hunted down and seen as the enemy because, of course, we provide a service largely for free and we take funds, money away from people who are trying to make lots of it and take advantage of people who don't have very much. And so that means a lot of times after big illnesses like this, we receive a lot of ire, I suppose, in the eyes, particularly of big business and, and big medicine, big pharma. So I just wanted to make sure to say that it's not that I'm not fearful in a way for myself and my family and my friends and other healers. It's that I know that providing healing for people is more important than my fear. My goodness, Linda. Wow. Thank you so much for adding that piece. And I didn't know that historical I'm like slurring because I'm just kind of shocked by that. Maybe shocked isn't the right word, but that was really mm, kind of perked me up to think about that. And it makes a lot of sense, although it's horrible. And I appreciate you saying that. It's important for us to understand the history of other pandemics as we look to the one that we're in so that we can protect ourselves while protecting others. And as we're talking about all of these things and honorable harvesting and growing with reverence and working with the plants and giving and sharing, I can't help but draw upon your work with restoration ecology and the importance of, for example, the life-giving prairies and grasslands. As many of us awaken or reawaken to the value of personal and communal gardening, I want to remind listeners of the importance of cultivating care beyond our immediate place. 
So I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of restoration ecology as we make plans for living well, and how is this an act of reciprocity? Wonderful question. Restoration is really in my heart because I look at lands that are sacred and I look at the ways that various practices, usually as a result of unbridled capitalism, have destroyed soil, have destroyed plant life, animal life, have destroyed air quality and water quality. And I do not lose hope when I see that because I have seen restoration take place. I've seen the rebuilding of soil and I've seen water that I thought would forever be undrinkable. I've seen that cleaned and you know purified and you know, I've seen the same thing happen with the air that we breathe in places. And it's really encouraging to me. And, you know, I think the reason I'm able to see that, the reason I'm always able to have hope when I see polluted areas is because I know that I have a connection with the plant nations and the animal nations, the other animals that will grow and thrive there. Because the first step to understanding restoration ecology is to develop a relationship with the land. That's absolutely the most important first step. I think there's this mythology when it comes to restoration that we have to take the land back to some indefinable time, maybe back to the 1500s, but oh no, you know, we were already here as indigenous people for eons, millennia before that. So where do we take it back to? You know, I think that it's unrealistic to think that we need to restore land back to this immemorial time and that that can actually cause more harm to plant and animal life, cause more harm than good. So what I like to do is to take the approach of communicating with the land. And as an indigenous person, I always hesitate to talk that way because people call me a big hippie when I do. But talking to plants, finding out what they need and where they want to grow and how best to grow them, experimenting with them, listening to them, understanding them, that is restoration ecology. And you cannot restore land without listening to the land. You do have to think about, you know, this is something I absolutely know. We have to think about rebuilding soil, restoring soil, air, water, wildlife, so that we can be better future partners to help sustain all life on this planet. We can't just be superficial and plant some trees and walk away and expect things to take care of themselves. We have to consider soil biota first and, you know, below ground relationships that sustain everything that's above ground. We have to show respect and consideration for all organisms. I know everyone always tries to think on the macro level, you know, let's look at these huge, beautiful trees and let's look at restoring bison to an area. But not many people are thinking about the microscopic organisms. And perhaps, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but maybe if we'd shown greater respect for the micro, we wouldn't be dealing with a pandemic virus right now. So I think that restoration ecology can sort of be a guide for how we relate to the planet, how we relate to our mother earth in the future. First listening and understanding and developing a relationship and then looking at ways that we can actually rebuild and restore and experiment. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? It answered the heart of the question completely. And 
I really agree with you, Linda. I've been involved with restoration ecology for the past six, seven years now, and I've been really disenchanted with the way academic restoration ecology is playing out or this restoration industrial Mm -hmm. complex. Like you were saying earlier with these visions of restoring back to a certain time frame 200 years ago, 300 years ago, it doesn't really make sense. We're not looking at what the land is saying right now and building those relationships and listening and trying things out and experimenting and being small and looking at the micro. And I agree, people are much more obsessed with the grandeur of the large trees or they want things to happen really quickly. But I think that's also something Mm -hmm. that stops us from being in relationship or having consent or trust building. If we want things to be fast and urgent and we just want something that looks degraded to be somehow looking like old growth status within our lifetimes, like that's not going to happen. We can't create old growth in a short span of time. It's old growth. I mean, these ecosystems, these lands take so long. And I think for me, getting comfortable with releasing the urgency, not in the sense of releasing care and passion, but just putting things in perspective and putting things in relational perspective is so important for me in my own learning. And so to hear you say what you've said so eloquently, it really helps me personally just stay on this path. And I'm sure so many others will resonate with what you're saying because I think that what we have been doing in this industrial academic lens or format or or way of doing is just not really working and we're not seeing the earth respond, I don't think, especially when we're just plugging trees into poisoned lands in a monocropped fashion not really thinking about the whole system, like the biota, like the microorganisms in the soil. It's so important. So I really am very appreciative that you spoke to that. Yeah. So thank you. You know, it helps when we think truly of the planet as our mother, as Mother Earth, and realize that these degraded or polluted areas are wounds. They are literal wounds on our mother and they are trauma. The healing of trauma is never easy. The healing of wounds is never easy. And sometimes it's a painful process, right? You know, sometimes medicine, when you apply it to a wound, it hurts and it takes time to heal. And sometimes it has to heal from the inside out. And, you know, we need to think of it that way. And we need to think of ourselves as all of us, you know, people who are practicing restoration ecology, especially, we need to think of ourselves as healers the same way that, you know, I heal other human beings. You know, I work to heal my mother and, you know, that takes a certain amount of patience and it takes a certain amount of tending to these wounds and being patient and, you know, always trying to comfort her and let her know that it's healing. You know, there's a lot of trauma, just like, you know, we have trauma, historic trauma and, and more recent trauma. Our mother earth has trauma as well. And that's a painful healing process. So it takes time.
Outside of our individual and immediate experience with this global pandemic, we're also grappling with how to make meaning of this message. It's common to hear this crisis framed as a spiritual one or an ecological message sent from the animal queendom, and it's also just as common to be reminded that historically, global crises actually cause modern economies to push themselves even further to make up for the loss gains. So it's a critical time that requires isolation, handwashing, and medicine, of course, but it also requires prayer, contemplation, and courage. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share any of your own framing or reflections on this time. Yeah, I mean, this is a time of great lessons. Um, It's a time when I believe that we are being reminded that we have to rely on each other. You know, I know my elders are relying on me, even though it's very difficult to self-isolate, to not do the work that I love to do over at United Tribes Technical College. It's hard. My elders are depending on me to not (laughs) go near them at this time, but to still make sure that they're taken care of. And so... I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from a global pandemic, but I think that they are internal and everyone has their own lessons. They're learning their own ways of doing this. And I I guess for me, it's about learning to appreciate the silence, learning to appreciate the alone time, learning to appreciate the downtime. I'm someone who constantly keeps myself very busy and I've had to stop doing a lot of activities that I really love and enjoy. And so I suppose if I were to frame it in a larger context, it would be that we're all learning, you know, how to look within, or we should all be learning how to look within. And then we're all learning how to apply what we find there to the outside world and, you know, do it without necessarily being right in front of each other. You know, I think one of the most frustrating things about social media is that because we are not face-to-face, we feel like we have permission to be cruel. When someone, when you can't feel their emotions, when you can't see their facial expressions, when you can't see them hurting, you almost feel justified in being very purposefully cruel. You know, I think that was the rise of internet trolls is such an interesting research project. And right now, I'm seeing less of that. I'm seeing people learning to be kind to each other and learning to try to read emotions from a distance, learning to try to read into feelings from text messages and emails and, you know, learning to read people from over a webinar, you know, and just from looking at them over, you know, through a camera lens. And maybe that's a good thing, you know, maybe because we are in the internet age, maybe we're learning to be a little kinder to each other, hopefully. Mm, Yeah, I hope so too. Now, I'd like to focus on some of the very delicate areas of the popular narratives going around COVID-19. In the environmental realm, the dominant narrative is one that highlights declining carbon emissions, a halt in many forms of transportation, the reappearance of animal kin throughout heavily populated human areas, and the reminder that we don't need as much oil as big companies are telling us we need. 
or that actually there is a surplus of oil. But often these conversations either romanticize or oversimplify the true expense of this disease in terms of the human lives it will cost. Indeed, it feels like we are veering into dangerous patterns of disposability and we must make no mistake that narratives of disposability are part of the colonial project. Economies are slowing, yes, but at the expense of entire swaths of our global population. So I wonder if you could speak to the complexity, but more important, the care that needs to be exercised in processing global pandemics. Yeah, I've been seeing that a lot too. People talking about how skies are clearing over Hong Kong and dolphins are swimming in waterways in various parts of Europe for the first time. Excuse my language, but it's bullshit. It's the poor and the vulnerable who are dying. The destruction of our planet is not a poor and vulnerable people issue. In fact, you know, the poor have probably caused the least amount of pollution on our planet. This is an elitist issue. It's the rich, it's major corporations and large industries. They're the ones causing the destruction of our water and our soil and our air. And we need to see how that ideology, you know, the idea that human lives are the cost for cleaner air, that serves the 1%, that serves the rich. It takes the blame and the focus off of them. And it's highly destructive. And if anything is making me angry (laughs) during this time, it is that. Yeah. I mean, going back to social media and just media in general, there's so much coming at us from all angles. And there are a lot of dangerous narratives that we need to Mm. understand. And I think that if we don't really look at them with a critical lens, that we will repeat the same destructive issues over and over again and really hurt each other. I think that the fact that carbon emissions are lower is a lesson to look at. You know, let's look at that. But you can't just put it on a meme and then one sentence later, wrap it up and then everybody go hooray. You know, it's so much more complex than that. So I I really appreciate you speaking to that. And yeah, this pandemic is showing us the extremes of our lived experience we're becoming, again, acutely aware that a different world is in fact possible. I think of the prisoners who were mandated to remain incarcerated for decades, now released early to be with their families. Workers at grocery stores whose value was estimated to be below the minimum wage, now recognized as essential. And cities across the country finding housing for the homeless. So after telling us for years that there weren't the funds or the space to do so, But I also wonder what happens to this power when the virus weakens or when life resumes to some sort of normal? What will endure? How do you think we can hold on to this momentum as so many are awakening to anti-capitalism? And how can we ensure that we don't allow global powers to divert our attention amidst a public health crisis and a likely global recession? What does recovery from this pandemic look like? It's a great question. My hope is that we will not forget that the only people who are keeping the world running at this time are the people, as you said, who have been deemed sort of at the bottom of the economic ladder. My own son, he's 18, and he works at a grocery store, and he's actually high risk because he's asthmatic. And I was finally able to get him to take some time off of work because I was so concerned. You know, I actually posted about how concerned I was on Facebook and I was shocked 
that people's reaction were, oh, isn't he so brave to be putting himself at risk to bag people's groceries? And, you know, I just <laughs> I was so angry at people who were talking that way because it's like he should not be the one putting himself at risk. And if that is an essential service, if my son bagging groceries for his high school job, if that is an essential service, then why are the 1% not recognizing that? Why is he making minimum wage if he is so essential? You know, and so as we watch how like these stock markets plunge, when actually no real infrastructure has been destroyed, you know, and, and no natural resources, you know, we still, as you said, have oil and all of that. If the stock markets plunge through all of that and our economy is crashing, what does that actually say about the labor of people like my son? You know, what does that actually mean about the importance of people who are doing these jobs, fulfilling these essential services, as they're called? And how do we make sure that the people who are in these sort of upper economic echelons, if we want to talk about it that way, you know, what will they do after all of this is over? Will they still recognize that importance? Well, I think that that's going to have to be up to us. I think that we are going to have to constantly remind them and not ever let them forget. I have seen a lot of people having this discussion, but with no plan about how to constantly remind the 1% of this. What happens? Maybe, maybe in the future, it's just going to mean that we have to stop working for them. Maybe it means that we have to stop pumping their gas and we have to stop bagging their groceries and we have to stop cleaning their hotel rooms and their hospital rooms in order to make them see how essential and how important people's labor is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that, yeah, as you were speaking, I just couldn't help but look back to some of my own reflections, especially the importance of using this time to organize and potentially stop doing the grunt work, the labor, the, yeah, what people have deemed as this less worthy work for the 1%. And right. I think looking in this country, there are a lot of us who are really safe in comparison to what is going on elsewhere. Of course, mm -hmm. there's struggle, but, you know, I was just reading this article in India of this mass exodus. And it was horrifying seeing these images. But I think instead of just talking about it or sharing memes through social media, I really feel like we need to use this fleeting moment to demand Medicare for all and participate in right. rent strikes, for example. And so I wonder if you could speak to the importance of taking action now, organizing, to ensure that we do, in fact, see measurable change at the end of this pandemic. Absolutely. Now is the time to demand that infrastructural change, Medicare for all, and talking to people about a living wage, demanding a living wage, realizing that people who are working in these labor jobs, these labor positions, them struggling actually has a negative impact on the entire economy and on the sort of our emotional wellness as well, the emotional wellness of the entire country. And, you know, that has much more of a trickle down and trickle up effect than actual cash does. So we have to demand this. We have to be voting. You know, it's coming up soon and we have to vote that way. We have to vote 
for the person and the people who are going to make sure that those lessons, these lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 are never forgotten. I can't stress it enough. Voting is what's going to be essential. Demanding that change from the people that we put into office is going to be critical and making sure that the people who are denying that to us are thrown out. Mm -hmm. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And I do think that we are in such a unique time because this country, the government of the United States and all over the world, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of lack of stability. So I think if we do organize, if we really do take this time when we're at home, when we don't have our schedules full to the brim, that we actually can make a lot of change with voting and otherwise because we're in a place where things are fragile. There is a lot of opportunity to say no or to say yes, whatever demands that we're speaking to, I could imagine them really taking hold. Like if enough people striked for rent freeze, what could they do about it at this point? You know, it's kind of like, wow, we have a lot at our fingertips if we really get together through the internet or in other ways to make a big change. And so I am holding on to that. And, you know, it's just such a strange time, though. I also wanted to speak to that. And you spoke to this a bit in your last response that we are also being reminded that it's really easy to capitalize on our fear particularly to enact draconian and authoritarian measures. And once these measures are passed, there's no telling if they'll be rescinded once the virus slows. For example, just last week, the EPA announced a freeze on enforcing environmental regulations for an indefinite amount of time due to the coronavirus, explaining that they will not seek penalties when major polluters fail to follow legal requirements on hazardous waste management and air and water pollution. So... With that in mind, I'd like to turn towards the importance of creating resilience and freedom where we can, because it's not enough to be acutely aware of what might be taken away. We have to proactively engage with what we can create for ourselves. So I'd love if you could speak to your work with cultivating food sovereignty and stopping the exploitation of body, land, and water. So, yeah, I think that, you know, all of these lightening of environmental regulations, along with what the EPA did in suspending those laws, Trump was weakening fuel economy standards and different states were passing laws to criminalize fossil fuel protests and things like that, you know, right under our noses. And that's really, in my opinion, the sign of a tyrannical government, you know, people who are exploiting and this government who's so opportunistic, right, that they're exploiting us at our weakest time, a time when we are supposed to be in quarantine, you know, a time when we're scared about getting sick and seeing our relatives or people dying around us, the government and their rich allies are selling off their stocks and lining their pockets with our suffering and a lot of cash. So it's really a time for us to stand up and say, okay, how can we not be part of that system? How can we help to dismantle that system that is oppressing us? And one of the best ways, in my opinion, that we can do that is by growing our own food. We can grow our own food If you live in an area where 
you only have a balcony or a porch, you can grow food in containers. I'm always amazed at the amount of usable space that is around apartment buildings that is filled with rocks and gravel. Demand that those rocks and that gravel be taken out and throw some topsoil on there and start growing your own food. Even if you have to start small the first year and you're only growing lettuce, you know, growing lettuce, growing small things that start, that is an act of resistance and it will just expand and grow year after year after year. Because once you get that feeling of being independent, of growing your own food, of feeding yourself and your family and your community, once you get that feeling, it spreads and you almost become dependent on it. And you, you know that next year you're going to go bigger. You're going to plant more. You're going to expand your gardens. And you see that garden bed in the median in the middle of the street. And you're like, hey, some apple trees would grow perfectly there. You know, that feeling is going to spread. It only takes a couple of people to start it in a particular neighborhood. And then the rest of the neighborhood will join in. And especially when you tell them about why it's important. So along with actually growing our own food and planting our own food and saving seeds, it's important to share why we're doing that. A lot of people will get so frustrated because they'll have their own garden and, you know, they'll have neighbors and other people coming and saying, hey, do you want to share some of those cucumbers with me? Can you spare a squash? Things like that. But they're not actually saying to their neighbors, well, here's a squash. Make sure to save the seeds from that so that you and I can plant them next year. I'll teach you how to grow this. The education behind that is so important. And it's not just the education in growing food. You know, we have to teach people how to grow their own food. We have to encourage them to grow their own food. But we do not just live in food deserts. We have to understand that. We don't just live in food deserts. We live in culinary deserts where people have forgotten how to cook good food. And, you know, a lot of people are embarrassed by that. You know, you, you hand them a kohlrabi, for example, or something even, you know, more common than that. Hand them a squash and ask them if they know how to cook it. And there's going to be a lot of people, even in indigenous communities, who do not know how to cook a squash. And so we have to teach people how to cook these items. And then we also need to encourage them to change their palates, to appreciate traditional foods, to appreciate good foods over time. It's not going to happen overnight. People aren't going to give up fry bread overnight. I've, I've tried, <laughs> but we need to encourage them. Okay. I'm not asking you to give up fry bread, but just try adding this squash into your diet a couple of times a week or adding a salad into your repertoire a few times a week. And here's how you make it. And this is what benefits it has. And this is how you make it taste amazing. You know, it requires just a passion for food. It requires a passion for the plants and it requires a passion for our planet and a passion for our community, a love of our community wanting them to be healthier, not just physically healthier, but more spiritually and emotionally healthy. Yes, I love hearing that. And I never thought about the culinary desert, but I completely see that. I think a few years ago before I grew squash, I probably wouldn't have known what to do with a lot of them. I don't think I did. And also some of them are so hard to cut that I think I probably gave up as soon as I couldn't get like a dull knife through one and realize like, I don't know what I'm doing with this big hard thing. And, you know, it's really, it's just when you were talking about how it could be, well, I guess the word came up contagious in a positive way, like getting 
your hands in the soil and growing food, it gets you. Working with plants, the plants get you. You know, I've experienced this with myself and so many others. There's that resistance wall that feels like we could be so distant from the plants, but then once we welcome them in and we smell them, we feel them, we touch the seeds, we feel the soil in our fingertips, like something magical really happens. And I think that you're right. If people just start small and it can grow within the community and there's an excitement around it, and then you have a potluck when we can have those again, and we're sharing the food from our gardens, no matter if it's a container garden on our balcony or otherwise, there's something so connective and primordial that all of our ancestors did at one point. And so I think there's a lot of healing that comes with food sovereignty on so many levels physical, spiritual, there's a lot of purpose in it. And so I love hearing you talk about this because it feels really good. And I think that like you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about laughter, we do need to feel good at times right now. Of course, we need to be taking in the truths and the hard truths. But if we don't have time where we're having a connection to joy and laughter and Oh, just that reverence, that feeling of reverence, I think it'll be really detrimental to us. And I I know that there's a lot of grief and panic and anxiety in the whole global sphere <laughs> at the moment because of the internet and social media and just 24-7 hour news streams, which I do not think us humans have been evolved to deal with this type of global news 24 hours, seven days a week. And, you know, we hear how many frontline responders are testing positive in New York. And we're aware of the increase in cases across Navajo Nation. And we're witnessing the spraying of migrant workers in India and just the atrocities of the position that the refugees are in in Syria. I mean, stranded in camps without soap or water. And I think this is causing both collective grief and an anticipatory grief, rightfully so. So amidst a time when we need to be nourishing our immune systems and we can't help but weaken them through our overpowering emotions, and like I said, rightly so, because we just can't turn away from the state of the world, I'm wondering if you could speak to how we can calm ourselves and how these tools will also be necessary in recovering from this pandemic over the long term, because we know it's not going away overnight or even in April. It's not going away. And anytime that I really feel myself getting anxious, you know, I try to stay as on top of the news as possible, but I only allow myself a certain number of views per day. Because as you said, this constant stream, I really can become obsessive about it. Because if I miss news, you know, especially where people are dying and people are suffering, and it's almost as if I feel guilty for missing it, you know? Oh, how couldn't I have known that, you know, those two grandmothers passed away up on, you know, the White Earth Reservation or down on the Diné Reservation? It makes me feel like, oh, I'm missing this suffering of my relatives and I should really be witness to it so that I can talk to people about it in the future. The very first thing I do when I start to feel that anxious is I breathe. I take super deep breaths. In fact, I take four super deep breaths, counting to 10 on the way in and counting again to 10 on the way out each time, just focusing on the numbers, just focusing on the counting. And taking those deep breaths, you know, sometimes I'll say to my students, how many times a day do you take a super deep breath? How many times a day do you take air 
all the way into your lungs, you know? And they will often say to me that they can't even remember the last time that they did that, let alone doing that even once a day. They can't remember the last time they ever thought about that or did that. And so the first thing I always do is breathe. And I encourage people to take deep breaths. And it's even better if you can get outside, get near a tree, get on a patch of grass, get into a garden, whatever you can do, whatever you can find, get out and get in touch with your plant relatives in whatever way you can and take those deep breaths in that spot. And it's so calming and it's so reassuring. It makes all the difference in the world. And it's difficult to talk about this, but I, in in my home, we burn plants quite a bit. We smudge, I guess is the popular term for it. Um, Lakotas use the word azilia, you know, to purify the air around you. And I think that that's really important, but... I was on a webinar yesterday where I said, if you are not native, do not use our sage to smudge with. Do not over harvest it. You know, a lot of our species of sage, especially like the California white sage, Salvia apiana, is being terribly over harvested and over exploited. And so what I always say is you can burn rosemary and it's fantastic. Even the, you know, the stuff you get at store in a bottle, you know, put some of that in a dish and burn it. It's antimicrobial. It purifies the air and there's plenty of it. You do not have to go out and exploit traditional indigenous medicine in order to purify the air through burning of plants. You know, there's just so many that you can do. You can walk outside and grab some juniper off of your juniper bush that's growing right outside of your yard or maybe in the tree row across the street or something like that. And you can, you know, get some of those juniper berries. You don't have to use threatened or endangered species just because somehow the media has taught you that those plants are somehow more sacred than others. All plants are sacred, you know, and so of course they have different medicinal properties and that's fine. But, you know, the point to burning plants is to purify the air. And there are lots of extremely common plants that have those properties. So breathing, smudging, making sure that you get outside in the sun as much as possible. That's difficult to do in northern climates where I am sitting right now in Bismarck, North Dakota. We are expecting five inches of snow tonight in April. So, you know, and and that's fairly common. So it's difficult to get out in the sun, but make sure that you're doing that as much as possible, getting that gorgeous vitamin D. Make sure that you are eating well, as I said earlier making sure that, you know, you're communicating and talking to people, being open to that. You know, we are taught that the expression of emotion is something odd or something to be ashamed of. But, you know, I called my mother yesterday and I cried to her. (laughs) I cried like a baby, I suppose, you know, and cried to my mom just about how stressed I am and about how difficult things are. And I felt so much better afterward. And I then talked to my partner and I I talked to my kids and we watched a movie together and we took a walk and doing these things are just so important and so vital and, you know, showing love and appreciation for the plant nations, for the food that we're eating, you know, even if they're animals, showing love and appreciation for the people around us not forgetting to have gratitude. It's vital right now. 
I feel so much better just from you saying all those things. I was so <laughs> riled up in my question and I was feeling like I didn't even realize it until you said breathe. And I was realizing that I was actually holding my breath and I had all this tension in my chest and in my throat. And when you were explaining <laughs> breathing, I actually did that. And the amount of release I felt, as simple as that sounds, it almost is silly how simple it is and how I know that I forget doing that. And when I'm holding my breath, the anxiety that builds, it's really interesting somatically to experience that. And I just did it right now. So that is really important for us to remember. And yeah, thank you also for speaking to the plant medicine. I never thought about burning rosemary, but that's a such a good idea. And it reminded me of thyme or oregano. I know yeah. rosemary glows. And you can, you can burn those. Yeah. And I love that. And yeah, I am so with you. We do not need to be using, especially for those of us who are not native to this land, to Turtle Island, we don't need to be using sage. It's not necessary at all. There are so many beautiful plants that are waiting for us to give them attention and to smell them. Rosemary, thyme, oregano. Oh my gosh, they're they're incredible. I love culinary herbs like those and so many others and yeah, thank you for speaking to that because I think it's important for us to know there are so many other plants available for us to interact with. And, you know, it's not just no to sage. It's like, but there's yes to all these other beautiful creatures that are wanting our relationships. So it's, yeah, it's like I wish I had a little rosemary with me right now. So yeah, I really love those herbs. And Linda, this has been so wonderful. And I just... I don't want to start closing this conversation, but I do want to make sure we talk about the survival meal kits that you're preparing. I was reading on Facebook that you and your partner mm -hmm. are preparing survival meal kits for elders on Standing Rock and the Cheyenne River Reservations. And so I mentioned this to find out if listeners can support this cause, and if so, how. Thank you so much for mentioning that. That's really kind of you. Yeah. So my partner and I are getting as many traditional ingredients together as possible. So for example, wild rice and maple sugar, maple syrup, real dried hominy, traditional beans, things like that. And we're even getting, you know, a lot of dried vegetables together, like dried vegetable mixes, dried fruit, traditional berries, such as dried strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, things like that. But we're also getting some non-traditional ingredients together, foods such as coffee and white flour and what else did our elders request? You know, it's things like that, that, that were very comforting to them. Oh, oil, of course, for them to cook with. And so 
we've been getting all, all of these items together and we're putting them into these kits. We're using these 18 gallon totes and we're trying to put a month's worth, 30 days worth of food into each tote to give to elders on Standing Rock and Shine River and within our local communities. Our elders are petrified. They are so scared. And some of them are so frightened to go to the grocery store that they're just not doing it. And there's no one else to bring them food. And so a lot of them are going hungry, but they're too scared to go to the store right now because they've been told that that's a hugely risky area for them. And of course, they are at a higher risk than most young people, or they tend to be at a higher risk. And so there, some of them I, I've been seeing and I've been hearing stories about elders sitting in the parking lot of the Walmart asking people to go in and buy groceries for them and bring them out and then wiping them down with Clorox wipes once they get outside, you know, and it's especially on areas like Standing Rock and Cheyenne River that are so remote. Some of our elders live two and a half hours from the nearest Walmart, two and a half hours from the nearest major grocery store. So it's, you know, a very difficult time for them. So we're putting these kits together, these 18 gallon totes, and we'll be handing them out to as many elders as possible. We've actually received enough funds to make more than 50. We had originally planned on 50. It's just my partner and I, and we don't want to expose anyone or ourselves to other people right now because we're supposed to be in quarantine. So it's just the two of us having these items delivered to our very tiny home. And, you know, so it's, it's a challenge, but we're getting it together and then we're going to hand them out. And with any of the funds that we have left over after these 50, we are going to make more kits that are the same with a lot of these beautiful, healthy foods and some other less traditional stuff. And we are going to hand them out to displaced students, displaced families who may have, you know, we, for instance, on the United Tribes campus, we have students who live in student housing and have nowhere else to go. And so they've been sort of left without any options besides trying to run over to McDonald's and things like that. So we'll start trying to make kits for them as well. But we want to keep feeding elders as much as possible. And we're using a lot of non-perishable foods. Luckily, traditional indigenous foods, of course, tend to be very non-perishable. So we're even including dried canned meat in these kits as well. And if anyone wants to contribute to that, then they can PayPal me at lynda.black.elk at gmail.com. Or they can Venmo at Linda Black Elk. So thanks so much for asking that. Oh, of course. And it's such a beautiful offering. And I was imagining these kits that you're creating and what a gift of not only physical nourishment, but just the relief that these elders and other folks will know that they're being cared for, that they're being thought of, that they're being acknowledged, that that they know that somebody's looking out for them. I think just that alone, that care is so relieving and tender. And it reminds me of other things we've talked about in this conversation, just how to be patient and how to really care for people and plants and the earth, not just in this time, but especially in this time. And maybe this time is an awakening for even more people to start being in relationship in these ways. And yeah, I love hearing what you're doing and it's really inspirational and maybe folks can not only donate, but also start doing something similar in their neighborhoods for their communities Absolutely. and mutual aid. Yeah. And it's, yeah. 
it's so important. And, and I, I also wanted to say we're including seed packets in all of these kits because we want to encourage people to grow their own food after this. You know, it's really apparent that if we are growing our own food, we wouldn't be having this problem right now. And I know it sounds strange, but elders have, you know, especially our elders, indigenous elders around here, they grew up gardening. And so a lot of them already know how to do it. They just lack the resources such as the seeds to do it. So we're including these seed packets and we're of course going to include directions for each of those plants and offering to come into a garden for them. So I think, you know, we're not just trying to think 30 days ahead, but we're trying to think much further ahead into the future mm. with these kids as well. Oh, I love that. That is such a important part of these baskets or these can just having the seeds in them it really goes with everything you've been saying in this conversation and oh it's just like it brings a smile to my face because along with all of the anxiety and overwhelm of what's coming at us from all these directions to hear what you're tangibly doing in this way it's like okay we can focus our time we can organize we can take care of others we have a lot to do in this time even if we're at home even if we feel like we're bored and we just need to watch netflix shows it's like well sure put a netflix show on while you're making a basket for the elders like there's so much that we can be doing to take care of each other and really build resiliency and i love how you're doing things beyond just this 30 days because this is not going to be over soon and whether or not COVID-19 ends in a few months, climate change is here. Global capitalism and globalization, we're up against a lot that is like a pandemic, but it is not called a pandemic. And so I do think we have to be taking this time as a lesson to know that other things are coming and we can really learn so much right now. And that in a weird way, gives me hope to know that we can take this time, organize, become more resilient in our communities. And so when the next thing hits, hopefully, we'll be much more prepared than we were this time around. So yeah, Linda, this has been such a beautiful conversation. And I could talk to you all day. And I would love to hopefully have a follow up conversation and talk even more about plants and the land because I know you have so much to share and I feel really honored and grateful that you spoke so directly to COVID-19 because we're not, it's not something that we've been talking to guests about so directly. And I felt like you were somebody who could speak to the pandemic with such a breath of wisdom and care. And I really feel that we need to hear your voice right now. And of course, other times as well, but right now, folks, need guidance. And I know I do. And so thank you for sharing this time with us. Thank you so much for having me and, and letting me speak. And yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, anything that I have said and anything that I know, it all comes from my people, my elders, you know, other knowledge holders who have gifted me with what they know. And so I want to say thank you to all of them and to you for having me. And, and yeah, much wishes for good things for you and yours. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Carter Lou McElroy, and the music you heard today was from Maddie Palanen and Chris Pareka. I'd like to thank our founder and host, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Aidan McRae, 
Andrew Storrs, Erica Ekram, Erin Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger. <laughs>